This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us, Sanjeev Patro. He's an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law & Langley. Practice broadly based encompasses a whole bunch of areas like commercial and business litigation, builder's liens, property disputes, estates, trust litigation. Man, Sanjeev, you've got it all going on in your practice. Well, it's it's a diverse clientele, so the practice sort of reflects that. That's awesome. Uh, now, the uh, in the uh, in your bio is really cool to see that you clerked in the BC Court of Appeal as well, and uh, that's always in, you always get an interesting perspective when you get to do something like that. Oh yes, that was the first job out of law school. It was uh, it was quite the education. I bet it was. I bet it was. So um, this uh, this segment is uh, we're just talking about. I don't know, just the different things that uh, you deal with as a lawyer or your practice deals with, and sort of giving us a bit of an umbrella look on the first one, first question, um, because we're often seeing court cases in headlines all the time. But there's a whole bunch of things that go on that never are reported or never in the paper and never uh, the regular public gets to see. Is there sort of common types of disputes that that you deal with or that lawyers in general deal with? Well, um, in terms of my personal practice, I think that the, the the catch-all would be breach of contract claims, where one person says the other side either hasn't paid what is owed or did not fulfill their end of the bargain. But um, I think you see also a lot of disputes arising, arising from the, the breakdown of relationships, whether common law or formal marriages. That always seems to revolve around the division of family property and the parenting of minor children. And I'm seeing uh, an increasing number of disputes that involve how assets amassed over a lifetime are to be divvied up when someone passes on. So uh, with a tremendous increase in the number of blended families and late marriages, you know, sometimes second and third marriages, we see a lot of disputes between adult children and, and the spouses of the people their parents married or settled down with later in life. So all in all, I think it mostly comes down to money. You know, whether it's a business dispute, a family matter, or a claim against an estate, people usually seek out legal advice when there's a significant amount of uh, money at stake and and they're loggerheads with someone else. I'm also thinking that it's a bit of a generational thing as well in terms of uh, baby boomers whose parents are passing or who have passed, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of us that are, are dealing with different issues when it comes to our children. Would you... Would you say that that's a, that's a fair observation? Oh, I think absolutely you've hit the nail on the head because, I mean, we just see in the, in the lower mainland a tremendous increase in price of real estate. So those are valuable assets. And at the same time, um, you know, people's incomes haven't kept up. So the ability to pass on wealth or, 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 or claim something from a, a parent's estate is, is somewhat more critical if you're ever going to get yourself established in life. 
Fair enough. And Sanjeev, I think it's really interesting on, on this show, we try to, you know, give our listeners some really valuable advice. And there's probably a lot of times when people said, you know, I wish I could hire a lawyer about this and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think today's segment would be helpful for people to know, you know, when is it useful? Um, you know, when can you fight and when, as opposed to when is something that's just not going to, um, you know, work to go forward with a lawyer. So you highlighted a couple of main areas of practice. I wonder if we were to talk about breach of contract. So for the average person listening, you know, what type of situations would give rise to them having an action for breach of contract? Well, I think that the, uh, it's a really, it's a good question because not every breach of a contract is really going to give you a, a reasonable basis to pursue something in court or, to, or, or talk to a lawyer. So I think importantly, if you've suffered the loss or if you're going to suffer a loss because of the way somebody else has acted on a contract and provided that uh, what they've done is, is outside of what was agreed upon or outside of the reasonable expectations of the parties, then you've got a claim there potentially. And, and it's important to go and talk to, the, talk to a lawyer early on uh, when you see this situation coming up rather than later down the line when things may have gone too far. And, you know, sometimes an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So by seeing a lawyer, you know, the first kind of whiff of, of a bit of a breach, you've got more options than if you allow something to continue on. It might be that you've accepted, okay, I'm fine to continue on, even though someone's in breach of a contract. Is, is that correct, Sanjeev? I, I think that's about right. Uh, you know, you, you can shape the litigation or, or the dispute resolution process by, by taking some steps. Sometimes you can gather information when it's available to you, when, when things have gone too far and, and the rupture between, say, two people are, has, has really manifested itself. Um, you're not going to be able to get that information which might be helpful to your claim, establishing the evidence that you need to pr- prove something. Um, you know, people will clam up uh, as, as things progress. I was also thinking that it, uh, the idea that um, there might be other reasons for the breach going on, like it, it may not be it, what it appears to be, and then what's actually going on is two different things, like maybe there's there's a, a an illness or a problem or something that's getting in the way of somebody fulfilling the other side of the contract, and sort of asking those questions early, that just makes so much more sense, uh, be, just in case it is something that's a little more complicated complicated or um, uh, emotional, or I can't quite think of the right word, but, you know, other than just very black and white breach of contract, I'm going after you because you're not fulfilling my, or, or the requirements or the, or what I, my expectations. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense because people, you know, they're, when they're in a situation where they're safe, facing a, a, a claim for breach of contract or dealing with a claim for breach of contract, um, they sometimes have trouble turning the tables around and looking at the situation from the other side. Because when people make a deal or come to an agreement, they each had certain expectations of what what they wanted to get out of something. Both, both sides intend to get something out of it. Um, and, and, and having an idea as what the other side was expecting out of it can, can offer um, some guidance as to perhaps the way out. So if you figure that this person needs to get to... to to a position X or Y or get this result, um, maybe you can work with them to, to resolve the breach, which gets you what you want or close to what you want and, and still sees them uh, get the result that they need as well. And Sanjeev, let's say we've got a bit of a dispute. We think there's a breach of contract or in a business relationship and we decide to hire legal counsel. What are the typical pitfalls that you would see as you go down the road um, that a client would need to be aware of? You could advise our listeners, if you're hiring legal counsel, be aware of X, Y, and Z. 
Well, I, I think I think I touched on one um, the, uh, just a minute ago, and that's not seeking out or, or advice mm. at the at the get go, at the earliest whiff of right. it. Right, waiting too long. <laughs> waiting too long, um, and it makes such a difference. Knowing a bit about the strengths or weaknesses of a claim or their legal position can be helpful in providing perspective, shaping the way the dispute is handled. For example, if someone knows early on that their position is relatively weak, they may look proactively to strengthen uh, their position by by taking some steps to gather helpful evidence or looking to negotiate a solution early on, recognizing that there's a significant potential for substantial legal costs or in the finding of liability against them. On the other hand, if someone knows early on that they're in a relatively strong position, they can negotiate from a position of strength and or know that they can pursue a claim more aggressively. I think another area where I see many people run into is when they're dealing with business and family. Mm-hmm. We, now, we imagine family, especially those who are close to us, to be reasonable, and we expect them to deal with us fairly. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. With family, people often do not properly document their dealings, whether they're loans from parents to their children or vice versa, agreements about joint purchases of property and the like. And unlike strangers, when it comes to family, people tend to be less forward-looking. So they don't look or think about what happens if the money is not repaid or this living situation doesn't under all under one big roof doesn't work out. People need to work, uh, think about that situation and how it might be unwind, money recovered, and that sort of thing. Um, we've only got, uh, I guess, four more minutes left in this segment. Uh, and I wanted to ask... Um, I know for a fact that there's lots of other options for folks when there's an issue, when when there's a legal issue that's arisen, and, um, and not going to court and not going uh, to a, into a, a courtroom to settle it. What are the other mechanisms that you found are are the most helpful or or as helpful for folks? Well, I mean, in my practice, I'm always willing to pick up the phone and talk to a lawyer on the other side to to sound out um, their their client's interest in, in negotiating uh, a, a settlement to a dispute. And, and I think that there are all sorts of sort of pressure points in, in the litigation process before you file a claim, um, maybe after people have exchanged documents and conducted discoveries, and then right before a trial when you're going to know what your evidence is, you're going to have a good sense of what the other side's argument. So that makes it, those are sort of good points at which to, to discuss. Um, settlement with the other side. But outside of that, um, there is a process called a mediation where a third mm-hmm. party, often an experienced lawyer with some training, acts to facilitate a negotiation in a structured way. Um, you know, in, the me- in a mediation, the mediator will work with each side to get them to better understand the perspective and the other side's view of things. And often the mediator will act as a go-between, conveying messages and offers and providing advice as to how to move the negotiation forward. But at the end of the day, it's also important to keep in mind that the mediator has no power to force a negotiation to end in an agreement, and uh, the process is voluntary. So uh, if any side wants to walk away, they're always free to do so. And another uh, out-of-court process is uh, arbitration. And this is a private, usually confidential process where uh, the people who are in a dispute submit uh, to uh, the authority of a a third party, usually retired judges or or senior lawyers uh, with specific experience. They agree on certain ground rules and a process. And, and essentially, it, it, it functions as sort of a private litigation. So you can keep all of your disputes uh, confidential. You can move the process forward 
faster. And, and when you're working in, in uh, a sensitive or a delicate business area and you don't want, say, outside competitors to be able to access documents that might have been filed in a public court registry, uh, it, it's a good solution. And Sanjeev, in the event that that doesn't work, the alternative dispute resolution, you know, arbitration, mediation, or just negotiating doesn't reach a conclusion, and you've got to go to court. Um, I've dealt with a, a bunch of clients who just had no idea what they were essentially biting off in terms of cost implications. Is there anything you could give um, guidance to listeners if a dispute does proceed to court and knowing that there's incredible amounts of variables, but is there a sense of a ballpark cost implication, you know, to get to court, you're looking at X thousands of dollars or any type of guidance you can give the listeners of, you know, essentially encouraging people to negotiate rather than taking things to court? <laughs> well, Blair, that's a tough question. And mm-hmm. I say it's tough because every dispute is unique. And, and I think the, the amount that people budget for uh, their legal expenses also has to take into account, from a practical perspective, what's at stake there. You know, it's, uh, I've often told clients that litigation is both an active and a reactive process. So I can do things to move a claim along or defend a claim, but how the other side reacts and what they do will have a direct impact on a client's legal fees. I generally try to break down the different stages of litigation. I, and Sajeev, I just want to wrap it up there because I think that's a really good place to leave this. Uh, because for folks that are wanting more information, uh, you're the guy to go and see. So we've been talking with Sanjeev Petro, a, an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law in Langley. And uh, you can get a hold of him on his website, MagellanLaw.ca. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us in studio is Rachel Riddell from Sands & Associates, an experienced estate manager and insolvency counselor. So just before I continue with your bio, you're somebody that I would see as part of my my team if I was coming to Sands to figure out my debt situation. Yep. Exactly, yeah. Excellent. Boy, you're going to be in good hands because Rachel uses educational and a very supportive approach. She provides all Sands & Associates clients. She works with all the information that you need to better understand options for resolving your debt situation. And this is Rachel's quote, helping people who are facing financial difficulty achieve a financial fresh fresh start is always my goal. So how does someone like you... Because I feel, I mean, you're young, uh, or you look young, certainly to me. <laughs> Beautiful. I wish this was television. You, um, How did you get into the business? Um, so my dad was an insolvency trustee mm. back in the day. Um, I played water polo for the national team for about 15 years. We're talking about the Canadian national team? Yeah. Wow. So once I retired from that, I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do with my career path. Um, So my dad suggested that uh, insolvency might be something I'm interested in. Um, I have a degree from Concordia University in sociology. I was going to say, because part of the, your, uh, what, what I told the folks about you is a counselor. And so you'd have, to have, you'd have to have some area of expertise in that. Yeah. No, I'm really um, just outside of work. I'm interested in people and listening to their issues and helping them try to find a solution to it. So, I mean, working at Sands is sort of the perfect fit. It, it ties into my degree in sociology. And I did... Um, uh, business diploma as well. So there's some aspects of that that help out as well with my day-to-day job. Wonderful. And I know that Blair is your boss. 
<laughs> but I'm still going to ask you. My privilege. Yep. Besides, besides working with Blair, what is the most enjoyable part of your job? Yeah, no, I love the people I work with, and it sounds is a great company. Um, but in terms of um, what I enjoy about my job, is just the aspect of helping people uh, feel a sense of relief that there is a solution to their financial difficulties. Um, it's sort of as, a, as if you can see, like sometimes the light come back into people's eyes that you know that their financial stress, all the sleepless nights, that um, it will finally come to an end. We've talked to. Um a number of people over the year mm-hmm. uh, who have who have uh, come out the other side of either a, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and the relief that they talk about, uh, comparing it to when they walked in the door with all sorts of. Uh, being so unsure and uncertain about the future. Some of them terrified even of, of coming to that meeting, right? We have people, Rachel, you know this, who'll book a meeting and maybe three times they don't feel like they can even show up. They're so scared and worried about it, right? Yeah, and then coming out that other end. Uh, it must be very gratifying to do this work. Yeah, and I think just that key word is relief. Usually no one wants to be in our office and they're hesitant and I think they think they're going to come in and get scolded or we're going to be judgmental. Um, or sort of, you know, blame them for being in the financial situation they sure. are, which isn't the case at all. Yeah. How, how did you make that mistake, right? Exactly. What were you thinking? I, I don't say that in my meetings. I know you don't say no. that either, right? No, and just... But, yeah. but people are thinking that, right? It's yeah. guilt-ridden yeah. and and shameful, right, that they're in this predicament because who knows how big their predicament is or, or how small it is, but yeah, a lot of emotional stuff connected to it. Yeah, and I think relief is just the key word that usually we hear at the end of every meeting is that, you know, people wish they didn't wait as long as they did before coming in because just after that 45 minutes or an hour, they're already feeling that sense of relief that there is a solution. To all, to all, to all that's been bothering them for so long. And, and we've, we've talked uh, about statistics of the number of people who lose sleep and f- suffer physically as a result of, of being overwhelmed by debt and and financial situations. So, yeah, that relief would be enormous. Yeah. And Rachel, I wonder if you can give the the listeners a sense of what could client expect when they come in and meet with you? What's your approach? Um, Say it's a first meeting, you've never seen the person before, uh, they've booked in to meet with you. What should they expect when they walk in the door? You introduce yourself, what happens next? Yeah, like I was just saying, like I take a very empathetic and non-judgmental approach Um, when I'm meeting with people, I like to usually spend the first 10 to 15 minutes of the meeting getting to know the person and sort of what brought them into our office. Um, And then, as you said earlier, like my goal is always make sure they fully understand what their options are and hopefully feel that sense of relief by the time the meeting's over. Excellent. And what type of things would you cover in in the first meeting? You know, if someone's listening, I think, oh my God, I've got to have all my financial life ready to lay out in front of me before I walk in the door. Um, What's your advice? You said before, you know, people worry about waiting too long. So obviously it's come sooner maybe than you think. But what type of information, what type of questions do you get into in that first meeting? Yeah, so the first meeting is pretty much just a conversation. We will talk about your income, your assets, who you're owing. Um, We typically just hope that they know that information. But if they don't, it's just so we can also explain what a consumer proposal is and a bankruptcy. Um, And then we always have time later on to gather that necessary information. But that first meeting is just a general conversation just to hear about what's going on um, in their life and explaining what we can do to possibly help them. 
And I'm sure just even discussing a consumer proposal, uh, because it was a brand new term for me when I first started working with Blair, and so interesting and so valuable. What an amazing mechanism for folks to use. Uh, But a lot of people don't have a clue. No, and that's the same, you know, sort of reaction that people have when they come in and they, I think they think bankruptcy is their only option. And I mean, it's a great option if it is your only option. But um, like you said, the consumer proposal, I think people are usually quite surprised with what their monthly payment is compared to what they've been trying to pay minimum payments every month. Yeah, and bankruptcy is such a, we've talked about this before as well, it's such a scary word for Mm -hmm. folks. Yeah, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of ideas about it that aren't true. But anytime we can help somebody avoid a bankruptcy, you know, that, that's a pretty successful day as well. And maybe segueing into that a little bit, Rachel, what are the biggest misconceptions or fears you find people have when they come to see you? We're down to just our last couple minutes here. Yeah, so I think just what I was saying earlier is that we're going to be judgmental and scold mm-hmm. them, um, which isn't the case at all. Um, and also that we're going to call their employer. Oh, right. um, which isn't which isn't the case unless their wages are being garnished. But we don't call everyone's employer and let them know. And I think that's a question I get quite often: is oh, my, is my boss going to know that I'm going through this? Yeah, I get asked about the paper. So when am I on the front page? Well, not for this, never. So hopefully if you achieve something great, you'll be there. But yeah, there's no bankruptcies in the paper. It's less than 1%, right? It right. Just, just doesn't happen. Oh, right. I never even would have thought of that. But of course, people, yeah. that would be, be a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, would you... Is there there is there pieces of your of your day to day work life that um, must be so gratifying for yourself to experience yeah. with folks? Yeah, I think just even that when you initially meet the stranger who's waiting for you in the lobby and then they come in and they think you're going to have this very maybe aggressive approach, mm-hmm. um, just sort of that connection with them once you can you know deliver them with this. It is life-changing information for them. And just sort of um, the connection you make with people um, after they find out that you know that we are there to be helpful and that there is um, there can be an end to their financial difficulties. So it's nice to connect with people that way who are going and struggling through such a tough time. That's really nice. And, you know, I just listening to Rachel talk, it's so important to have um, folks uh, – on your team that are so empathetic Mm -hmm. for people because it is scary. It is frightening. And it's all of that that we've already talked about when people are walking in the door, don't have a clue. And there's such a negative connotation with it all that you can't help but feel bad. And that's the whole ethos of of the firm here is, you know, we, believe that anybody could face financial difficulties at any time. It could be me, it could be anybody here. So, you know, why wouldn't we treat everybody with the utmost of compassion, respect, and empathy? Absolutely. Now, in closing, we've just got 20 seconds. Words of advice for anyone who's struggling listening to this and struggling with debt. I think that if you're struggling financially, um, and this isn't just a plug for Sands and Associates, but no, just, we can plug them. It's okay <laughs> <laughs> to definitely to meet with an insolvency trustee. It's a free consultation, and just knowing your options, I think, as we've said over and over, will provide people with a lot of relief. Excellent. And if you'd like more information or want to just do some reading, go to sands-trustee.com. It's a terrific website, chock block full of great questions and great answers. If that's the thing that you need to then make the phone call uh, and make that uh, get that free consultation and to, and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
On the line with us is Kate Flanders. Now, Kate, a a described former binge consumer turned mindful consumer of everything. And through a lot of personal stories, she wrote about what happens when money, minimalism, and mindfulness mindfulness cross paths. Kate's story's been shared a lot of places. Oprah.com, Forbes, Yahoo, The Guardian. We're so happy to have you with us, Kate. It's just, oh, I'm really looking forward to this piece. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I just want to mention your blog address, uh, www.kateflanders.com, and Kate is spelt C-A-I-T. Now, Kate wrote a book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. I want to repeat that. Shopping (laughs) ban. Yikes. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish with her three loves, and I love this piece, Mountains, the Forest, and the Ocean. Nothing wrong about that. Nothing (laughs) wrong about that on this beautiful part of the country, for sure. So let's start with some questions about uh, The Year of Less, uh, the the title of the book that you wrote. Um, Often authors will talk about a a specific piece or a specific event or idea or thought that literally propelled them into the idea that I should write this down and it should be a book. How, How did that come about for you? Oh, like the actual book? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest and say that it was actually uh, never part of the plan. Like yeah. I, have, I have been blogging since 2011, and it, um, yeah, it was just never, never part of the plan to write a book. I used to write anonymously. Like when I first started my blog in 2011, I was maxed out with close to thirty thousand dollars of debt, and I wrote anonymously because I didn't want anyone to read it. Mm. Um, that changed over time. Like after I'd paid off the debt, I felt much more comfortable, kind of. Um, using my real name and putting my face on the on the website, but I, um, you know, when I took on the shopping ban, it was still just very much meant to be like kind of a personal experiment that I was going to do. And it wasn't until after I finished it that um, I did an interview with someone I knew um, through a job, like years years before, and we she actually wrote a profile about the piece for Forbes, which she was writing for at the time. And when the day it came out, she sent me an email saying, just FYI, these things have a tendency to go viral. (laughs) And I just thought nothing of it because, I mean, I didn't know Laura well, but I had worked with her for a little while. She was an editor of mine at one point. So I really thought nothing of it. And then within two weeks, I had been contacted by six different literary agents um, with all of them thinking it could be a book. So then I was just really grateful that I had documented (laughs) on the blog. And I think Blair, who I know, I I have not read your book, only because for no other reason than I just haven't, but Blair has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what a gift. Yeah, I was explaining to, to Elaine, I was traveling when I read the book, and, you know, it just really caused me to pause a bunch of times and, you know, ask myself th- those bigger questions about, you know, who am I consuming for? And, you know, what, what's this, this benefit that I'm getting from all the consumption from it from a day to day? But I wonder for sharing with listeners here, Kate, can you tell us, you know, how did you structure, structure um, the rules about, about the shopping ban? Yeah, so uh, there were basically two or two lists that I wrote. Um, and so the first one was honestly, like just we could call it consumables. Mm-hmm. So things like groceries, um, obviously putting gas in my car. So and okay to buy stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, all this stuff's good to buy. So that stuff's okay. Um, even like going to restaurants sometimes, totally fine. Toiletries, like as you use them up, mm-hmm. totally fine. Like the things that you use often, you're allowed to buy like as you need more. So you don't have um, a closet full of toilet paper or paper towels, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? That's not part of this. 
Yes, exactly. Hoarding <laughs> paper products. <laughs> no. Um, and then I wrote the list of things I was not allowed to buy. And that was structured basically from me walking around my home and looking at the stuff I already owned and really just saying, like, I have enough of this. So, I found that fascinating. Um, so what were some of the things on, on that list? Yeah. So like clothes, um, shoes, things were around the house, um, books, magazines. Like I just, I had stuff. It's not even that I had a lot. I wouldn't have even sort of, I don't know, even if you'd walked into my home, it's not like it was a totally cluttered mess or anything. Like I just, I had enough. I didn't need more. Um, And then the only caveat to that was that I did write a short list, again, kind of looking ahead, knowing I was doing this for an entire year. Um, And I wrote this short list of a few things I would be allowed to buy throughout the year. And like an example was um, I had five weddings to attend that year. Okay. And I don't really own the kinds of clothes that I would wear to a wedding. Like I just don't really dress up ever. It's just not who I am. And so I was like, I can buy one outfit, so like one dress, one pair of shoes to wear to all of the weddings. Okay. Um, So some things like that. And you must have bought gifts for these people who got married? Yes, that was also, again, I never wanted the shopping ban to affect other people. Nice. Um, so that was also, that was fine. Yeah, because I guess you were trying to, to prove the point that, you know, the, the purpose of life, not to give away the book, but, you know, a lot of the, the enjoyment is not not what you have to buy, not what you spend money on. Um, so I think one of your, your points here was you could do a shopping ban and actually have a more meaningful life than, you know, have your life suffer for that. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, and I think, like... It wasn't, um, or something I really want to say is like, I don't think buying stuff is bad or spending money is bad. And actually, I would almost really encourage us to kind of start removing some of the shame around the things that we are buying. Like, you guys know, personal finance is so personal. So we can't really judge like what people are spending money on. But I think inside, we know personally what we're getting fulfillment out of or not. And sometimes it is stuff. Like sometimes stuff really helps us with the things that we love. So, or or you just really like it. And like, if it's in your budget, that's okay. As long as you're using it. I think for me, it was just really realizing I had never questioned purchases. I just bought stuff thinking it would somehow help me or help my life in some way. And, and I just had to let go of that. Like I really had to learn how to sort of stop buying impulsively or also preemptively, like thinking I'm going to fix something in the future. Mm. Um, and just buy like when I've actually felt a need for something and then and then knowing it's for the real me and I'm actually going to use it. Is Was there a bit of a process that you went through like f- three questions or four questions that you asked yourself whether the piece stayed on the list or if you were ac- actually in the store and you were tempted to buy it? Like was there a bit of a process for you with each thing? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I for most things I just knew like if I kind of saw something and, or I found myself in a situation where I was thinking of buying something, I could pretty quickly talk myself out of it just being like, you don't need that. Like it's on the list. And I would also consider my blog too, being like, I don't want to have to write a blog post that says I gave in and I responded. (laughs) I'm not going to buy these things because I genuinely don't need it. And I don't want to tell anyone. I'm not going to do it. That's excellent. (laughs) And, uh, but no, I think that having accountability helped. I also think that there were some things like it did come back to if I had felt a need for it, like there were a couple things throughout the year that like life happens and you do need things. And it was just really coming to a place of learning how to say like, have I actually felt the need for this? Like, did I walk into the store for this thing or is something just making me think like, what kind of stories am I telling myself right now to maybe justify it? 
What about challenges, challenges that you didn't expect to come up that did? Yeah, so I think the the big one, and, and Blair will know this from reading, is that um, so something that, I'll just go backwards slightly and just say that something that um, I hadn't thought of before starting the band was that in the same time period that I was paying off my debt, I also stopped drinking. Mm. And I think that I had never really understood how... Um, how much I used drinking as a coping mechanism for so many things. And then because it wasn't there, it's not that surprising to me that when sort of more personal challenges came up throughout the year of the shopping ban, it made me just want to spend because I knew I wasn't going to drink, but spending feels like the next easiest thing to do. And so I, I thought a lot about it. I went through a breakup that year and thought a lot about buying things that would just make me feel better. Yeah. Um, and I also found out my parents were getting divorced that year and that was a very, like, it was just a personal struggle, but in those situations definitely found myself or just realized I was a much more emotional consumer than I had ever realized. And I really in, enjoyed re- reading the book, Kate, because it was it was not what I expected, as, as you just alluded to. It was more of a, a personal memoir and really you fighting through a number of challenges. Um, and, you know, you and I spoke before the segment, but, you know, I quit drinking about four years ago and I went through a lot of the same type of, um, you know, challenges that, that you were mentioning about. You don't have that as a coping mechanism anymore. Yeah, and it's so, I, I just think it's one of those things that it's not like every person who reads the book needs to have gone through our shared experience, but I think it it really just shows that as as unfortunate as it is, I think like money and, and all of this stuff, like it's a lot more emotional than we maybe would, would like, <laughs> like yeah. but, it, but it really is. And so there was so much that year that going through this stuff, I really realized I was an emotional consumer. I didn't have alcohol to help me anymore. And so spending just felt like what I, like the, the easiest and, and sometimes doesn't feel that harmful, like in the moment when you're going to make those decisions, because it, you know, there's like science, like it does feel good to spend money sometimes. Mm-hmm. It does feel good, like, but that, that it doesn't help long term and neither did drinking. So. Right. That's really quite something, Kate, that you, that this was, this was your journey that you went through and it started as one thing and evolved into something else. I think that's really, really fascinating. Well, and I think for me now, I sort of look at personal challenges like that in general, like it's, it's, um, you can never know what the end result is going to be. Like, you just can't. And I'm actually really glad that I walked into it a little bit blindly and almost, like, naively of just like, oh, this is just going to be this year where I, my goal is to, like, spend less and save more. Sure. Um, and, and finish it. And, like, yes, I could say that those things were true, but it, um, yeah, it, it, it did become about so much more than that. And I'm so grateful, too, that I was able to, like write the book that agents did see an interest in it and stuff like that because um, it's actually funny. I would say the majority of people wanted it to be more of like a how-to book, Mm -hmm. something more of, you know, I don't know, here's 10 ways to do this. Um, But for me, I was always very adamant, like if this is going to be a book, it has to be more of a memoir. Like it has to be more personal. I don't want to just write like 10 ways to not shop. Like I could could write that in a blog post. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing. You have the whole blog that you can, that you were able to use to sort of the daily stuff or the weekly stuff that would come up. Uh, So that, yeah, that makes good sense. And it just feels so personal. And the cool thing is, and I bet you've experienced this when you've heard from people, is that loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people have those same 
those same thoughts, those same ideas, that those same pauses uh, before either purchasing something or doing something that they know they're just doing to, I don't know, deal with this other thing that has nothing to do with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and like now a common thing I'm hearing from people is one part particular in the book where I just mentioned that I realized I used to buy a lot of things for this more like aspirational version of myself. Uh-huh. The number or like probably one of the most common things I hear from people is I had never realized that until I read that sentence. Excellent. Like that, that is what they were doing too. Very so. good. We've been talking with uh, Kate Flanders, who's written a really interesting book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish, so not very far away. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I am going to assume, by this topic of this this, uh, segment, no fee or low-cost bank accounts, Mm -hmm. I have a sense that you're a real believer that we shouldn't be paying the fees that where a majority of us are paying. 100% Elaine. To me, it's this slow drip that, you know, over time it adds up to something significant, but to me, it's just insane. There are so many options where you can get banking at little to no cost. So when I have someone come in to me and I see their budget, it's $25 a month for bank fees. Um, I'm just amazed because I know you can probably get that for nothing or close to it if the person were willing to look around and survey the market a little bit. And so that's what I did during this segment today is I want to tell you, here's what I think are the best low-fee, no-fee type of accounts across different institutions and give you some general thoughts to consider if you are going to change banks. Yeah, and, we're, and we name names. It's not like we're not telling you exactly who's doing what and, yeah. and the best way to go. We're going to highlight the positives. Yes. yes. Yay, something positive. Mm-hmm. So the, the fees is where the, the focus of this segment is. That's the thing that you think we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. I kind of agree with you. So let's start. No fee checking accounts. How do people write checks anymore? I write very few checks these days, but I know yeah. I do a lot of banking out of my checking account for sure. Yeah, fewer and fewer, um, but it is definitely a function that you would want because there are certain types of you know transactions where you'd like to have that written record, the cancel check. Fair um, enough. You know, it's it's something tangible as opposed to something electronic. I think less and less people will use checks, but um, basically a checking account is kind of a catch-all term for your, your your day-to-day type of a bank. Okay. Um, so a couple of no fee checking accounts that I really love. Um, the first one is Tangerine, and this is a part of Scotiabank. And originally, if people remember back, it was ING Direct for a number of years. I remember they've, that. So they've always had kind of that orange branding, and now Tangerine and orange is right in the name there. Um, they've got a no-fee daily checking account where it's unlimited transactions. And what I think people don't know, and that's why they're a little reluctant to go to some of these smaller banners like a Tangerine, is you get access to all of the Scotiabank ATMs. So you know, another big pet peeve, maybe more than you know, daily banking fees, is those ATM charges. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they can cost you. Five or six bucks to take out your money, which if you're taking out, you know, thirty dollars, twenty dollars, well, how much is that as a percentage? It's insane, right? right. So you get unlimited access to Scotiabank ATMs. Um, you can deposit checks with your smartphone, and this to me is just the most transformative development in the past few years. I don't visit branches anymore because why would I? I can deposit everything I need there. Um, I can take money out of the bank machine, so it's pretty uh, few and far between that I'm visiting a teller. I'm with you. So, so you get that type of a function as well. 
um, and Tangerine, one of their key differentiating factors, so they actually pay you some interest. Now, nothing significant, right? You're not going to get 5%, 10% interest, but it is better than typically what most of the big banks are going to get you. Um, they'll give you free books of checks. So, you know, sometimes you can be charged $20, $30, $40 for some checks. Yes. All that you would get for no fees at all with Tangerine. Okay. So if someone is one of my clients uh, who's filing a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, I tell them to change their bank account if they owe any money where they're banking. Right. Um, and Tangerine is one of the top places that I would send people to because of the no fees, because of the Scotia ATM access. Excellent. Okay. Num- next one. Mm-hmm. Coast Capital Savings? Yeah. So Coast Capital, this is a credit union. And I wanted to give a bit of a caveat about credit unions in that they can be great, but you have to be a bit careful if your credit is not, you know, shall we say pristine or not solid or whatever, because all banks are subject to the Bank Act in Canada. And the Bank Act requires that any Canadian has the right to have a savings account at any bank in Canada subject to the Bank Act. You cannot be turned away. Credit unions are not subject to the Bank Act. So I have had clients who I've sent there to say, okay, let's start your new financial future, you know, go get yourself a new bank account. And at the credit union, they pull a credit report. And sometimes they're not always the nicest in telling them that, I'm sorry, we don't want your business. We don't want to allow you to deposit your money with us. Hmm. So It doesn't sound very credit union-y, it does it? It doesn't align with the brand at, at all. Not at all. And I actually wrote to the board of one of the credit unions and they, they wrote me back rather tersely. Well, we're a, mem- <laughs> we're a member-based organization and we can do what we like. Okay, exactly. well, I understand that. <laughs> that being said, Said, if your credit is okay, you know, credit unions can be a very good option. Um, Coast Capital, they've got a free checking, free debit, and more account, uh, which again, no monthly fee, unlimited day to day transactions. Um, free withdrawals and deposits at 4,000 ding-free ATMs across Canada. And I wanted to know what that ding-free means. And it means basically they don't charge you any fees. Okay. It's an ATM network that includes HSBC, Manulife, and all of the credit unions. Okay. So typically if you're with one credit union, you can use bank machines right. at all of them and not pay a fee, which, which is great. Yes. Um, you know, online check images, um, e-statements, all that stuff. So again, it's, it's a free day-to-day banking account. Um, many of the other credit unions also do it. You know, Envision's got their free account with the same ding-free access. Um, just one more bank to highlight here, and then, then we can move on to a couple others. But um, Simply is another one of these banks that's kind of a bank within a bank. So similar to Tangerine, they're probably my top two that I send folks to. So Simply, they were previously PC Financial, President's Choice Financial, which oh. you'd see, you know, the bank machines at Superstore or different things like that. Okay. Um, and I believe I got my first account with them in about 1998. So I'm about a 20-year client with them. Hmm. I've never paid a single fee. So every month, unlimited transactions, um, free e-transfers. You can use every CIBC ATM in Canada, which generally CIBC is one of the biggest banks. You're going to find the ATMs there. Um, No minimum balance. And I found that to be very good customer service. So for me, banking means I'm using the app. I'm logging in online. Maybe I'm giving them a call. For both Simply and Tangerine, there is no physical branch. So you going in to try to see somebody, that's really not going to happen. You do your your business essentially over the internet um, or through the app. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So if you do want, you know, the service of a teller, a couple of those credit unions that I mentioned, they're usually your your better options there. Got it. Okay. Uh, limited restrictions. Yeah, so there are some uh, various accounts with different banks where they want you to, you know, basically meet a set of criteria. So with Van City, they've got a Checking Plus account where they're happy to give you all of these, you know, the no monthly fees, the free check image deposits, all of that. But it's for members under 25 and over 55. So if you fit those demographics, yes, you can get free banking with Van City. If you don't, um, you're probably looking at some, you know, ideally minimal fees, but hey, it's still more than zero. So you may want to try to negotiate with them and say, you know, I'm 26, do you want to give me the same deal? Um, or just be aware that there are, you know, basically certain 
certain parameters around free banking at, at Man City, for example. Fair enough. Um, island savings? Um, yeah, so kind of similar. We've got free bank account, free transfers, you know, free depositing checks, all of those things. There's there's a bunch of other ones here. You know, we've got island savings, we've got Manulife, um, and again, Van City we've, we've talked about. So I think what I want folks to take away is just to understand that, you know, there's a lot of options out there. And if you're paying, again, I see people 15 to $25 per month on bank fees. I'm really struggling to understand what value they get from that. Now, is any of that stuff ever negotiable? Like, because it, let's say I'm I'm just learning about a place, and I thought, oh, I didn't realize that I was paying that, or, or you know, I'm going to go home and look at my statement and go, oh, man, mm-hmm. I, had, I didn't realize that. Uh, and then, do you know, does anybody negotiate? So, you yeah. know, I phone up and say, you know, I've been a member for, their, well, I'll give it away, a credit union member for yeah. 30 years. You know, what are you going to do for me? What have you done for me lately? Oh, yeah, my view in life is everything is negotiable. Okay. So, yeah, I've definitely had uh, interactions with banks, with credit card companies, you know, if I was was late paying my bill one month because I just missed it for a week, but I've never been late for two years. Um, I've called the credit card company before and say, I'd like you to remove these extra charges first time ever. It's inadvertent. They've almost always done that. Right. So it's obviously if you don't negotiate, you never get any result, but there's nothing to stop you from saying to the bank, you know, I know I could get a free account somewhere else. Let's negotiate these fees a little bit lower and, you know, see if, if you do get any benefit or not. Okay. Um, I think one final thought I do want to leave people with, and this is the idea about banks want you to put everything on under one umbrella, right? Good point, They yes. want you to borrow where you have your savings and your checking and your paycheck coming in, you know, basically a one-stop shop. Yeah, your mortgage, your whatever, exactly. everything. And my advice to everybody out there is just don't do that. Always separate your monthly payments or your monthly income, your paycheck. Have that at a bank where you do no borrowing whatsoever. And the reason for that is if you have all your banking at one institution, your deposits and your debts, if you ever miss a payment, they have the right to go into your account, take that payment, clear out the account or even close the account. And that might leave you with no rent money, no mortgage money, something like that. If you have an account at a different bank, they have to jump through about 10 different legal hoops before they could ever put any fingers on your money. So you get the time to really structure things to make sure you're never Never going to get surprised. Uh, so I advise to everybody, wherever your paycheck gets deposited, leave it just as a checking account there. Do all your borrowing with a different institution. I think that's great. And and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the most important. It's one of the things that I learned from knowing you is that. And, and uh, I'd never thought of that before. Yeah, so that's just, great. just don't make it so easy. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to go see Blair, nice and easy to do. Uh, he All you have to do is make an appointment. And I'm going to give you the uh, number uh, to make to get that free consultation if you're dealing with debt at any of the Sands and Associates offices. It's 1-800-661-3030, as well as to find an office near you. If you've got thoughts or questions and you don't want to talk to somebody quite yet, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. There's just a ton of good information there. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.